Man, it's so good to see everybody here this morning. You know, we have a lot of people that are ill or in the hospital or have some uh, life-threatening issues, and I thought I'd ask that you guys be in prayer for them. Um, in particular, I want to thank Gary for coming, even though Joy is in the hospital. Um, be praying for her as she is um, dealing with just with a lot of, of illness. And if you're on the prayer chain, and if you're not on the prayer chain, get on the prayer chain. But if you're on the prayer chain, you know uh, what's going on. And also pray for Leo and Maria as they've had a, a quite a scare with some tumors. So just be in prayer for them. I also want to apologize for the mess in the hallway. And I, and I say that tongue-in-cheek. I'm not really sorry for the, for the mess uh, because we're, we're doing improvements. And so you may have things that are moved that you're used to. So be flexible. Keep the end in mind that we are renovating and we are updating and we are adding flooring and walls and windows and all sorts of things. So as you guys are turning in your Bibles to Esther, I'd like to ask the Lord for help. Uh, this morning as we preach the word and, and help you listen to the word as we need it desperately. Father, we come before you this morning grateful for who you are and what you've done. Lord, that we have grace that is greater than all our sin. Lord, it's such a, a humbling reality to know that we don't understand grace until we see how desperately we need it and then to get it offered by you and from you. Lord, as we approach our text this morning, we are reminded by the, about the great reversals, the great reversals of life, how you uh, sent your son, Jesus Christ, who came from his palace in heaven to come and live the life of a, an ordinary human with extraordinary results. Father, we thank you for Christ and, and the work on the cross. Father, I would like to lift up the churches in our area that they would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning to, to those around. Lord, we uh, lift up in particular First Baptist Church just down the road. Uh, Lord, be with their preacher, uh, whether if it's Jesse Wood preaching. Um, we thank you for his, his newborn child and just the joy that that comes with that. So, Father, we pray for these things. We ask in your name that we would uh, be attentive to your word, that we would not just be hearers of the word but doers also. Lord, I pray for me that your, your word would come forth in spirit and truth, and it would not be the opinions of man. And we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. So I told you guys to go to Esther, but I did not go to Esther. Esther, chapter 7, is where we are going to pick up. So we have arrived at the climax of the story. We have reached the mountaintop. And we are looking at the downhill of Esther. Things are going to be resolved today. All but one thing. So we still have some foreboding for next week. But all things are going to be resolved. And we want to know, what is going to happen to Esther? Is she going to perish with all the Jews? There's been an edict by the king that cannot be changed. That all the Jews in the land can be attacked or will be attacked and destroyed. Esther and Mordecai have been working and praying and, and uh, trying to intercede on behalf of the Jews. Mordecai is the adopti, adopted father of Esther. I don't know if that's, Esther is Mordecai's adopted daughter. Does that make more sense that way? And so Esther is become the queen because Vashti, Queen Vashti was deposed because she didn't please the king. And so we have all these 
Jews to be exterminated because a man named Haman didn't like how a Jew looked at him. That's kind of what happened. And so we see that the Jews are to be exterminated soon in the month of Adar, which on the Hebrew calendar is somewhere around February and March. And we're going to talk a little bit more next week about Purim and that holiday. Today, though, we want to know what will happen to Esther. What will happen? She's already set the, the field with these banquets. Now, the question is, in her big pitch, will King Ahasuerus, as we know, King Xerxes, will he respond in favor? Or will he reject her offering? Now, the book of Esther is, is written sort of like a play. It's actually um, been taken as an early form of, of playwriting. And we have this drama. And it's, it's kind of broken into two parts. So chapter 7 is part 1. Chapter 8 is part 2. And each part has multiple scenes and multiple episodes. And so as we approach this first part, we're going to see the great reversal of a life for a life. So make sure that you're at chapter 7, and notice that there are three parts to this scene. And the first part is Esther pleading for her life. So to locate us, remember we are at the second banquet. Esther has invited the king and his advisor to the first banquet and said, come to my banquet. And so King Ahasuerus is excited. He goes to the banquet. He's super, super thrilled that his queen is, is honoring him with banquets. You know, King Ahasuerus loves banquets. He likes to party. And we've seen that. And so at the second, at the first banquet, he asked her, what do you want? And she says, come to my second banquet. And we talked a little bit about how shrewd she was because she worded it in such a way that if King Ahasuerus comes to the party, the second party, he is already agreeing to give Esther what she wants which is really quite clever, and we, we, we talked a lot about that last week. So Esther, so he asks Esther again what she wants, and he's thinking in terms of money and land and kingdoms, and she's, she has lives in mind, and so she pleads for her life. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 6. That, uh, excuse me, the king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, see that emphasis on wine? The king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this, and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, The adversary, the enemy, this is this evil. Haman. So, as with any good drama, as with any good play, the dialogue moves the story along. And we see here that we can get a feel for the scene. So, if 
if this is your first time reading this, you may not have caught the nuance of what's going on here. So Queen Esther begs for her life. She says, spare my life, which is going to come as a shock to the king, right? The king's like, I thought everything was good in our kingdom. And so not only that, but spare the life of my people. And so it begins to elevate. Do you see the tension building in the conversation? So she says, save me. And really, if it, if it was just about slavery, it wouldn't be such a big deal. But I'm about to die, and my people are going to die too. And King Ahasuerus, as a, as a good man, says, who's threatening you? I'm going to crush this person, right? He, he gets affronted. And the problem with this translation, the CSB, is they've smoothed out the language. In the Hebrew, it's very short and choppy. So let, let's go ahead and look at, at verse 5. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? In the Hebrew, it's like this. It's who this, where, and why would they fill their heart to do this? It's very choppy. So because we're not watching the play, you have to use dialogue to explain the tension in the story. And so we have this intensity and this anger. And then Esther's response is also very choppy in the Hebrew. And it's at the adversary, the enemy, this evil Haman. Right? It's very, very choppy. So you can almost picture it. They're sitting around the table. They're laying back, having their drinks. They're relaxing. And she basically drops this bomb on the party. Right? It says, my life is in danger. And so he's like, who is it? I will take care of it. And she clips back, this evil Haman, the guy that's sitting next to you, your most trusted advisor, he's the one that did it. And then this shifts us into scene two. Haman pleads for his life. So Esther pleads for her life. Now all of a sudden we have Haman pleading for his. And the second part of six, Haman stood terrified before the king and the queen. Let's go ahead and read some more because I think this is kind of important. Verse 7, the king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking to the palace garden. Haman re remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. We see the king, he exits stage right, right, out of his anger. And so now all you have left is Esther and Haman, man versus woman, right? The two adversaries are now facing each other. Man, Haman dropped from his lofty position pretty quick, didn't he? I mean, it was just the other day he was walking around having everybody bow to him, and now all of a sudden he's having to beg the queen for his life. But then we see the king return in verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Holy smokes. What is going on here? Just imagine the scene for a minute with me. You're at a party. She drops the bomb. Haman is like standing there shaking because he knows he's about to die. I mean, the king's about to be angry. The king's angry, he storms out, which is kind of unusual for King Ahasuerus. Usually he just acts out wildly. But he storms out to the garden to catch his breath. 
And then Haman goes and begins to beg Queen Esther for his life. And he's, he's begging her so adamantly that he's like basically on his knees next to her couch, falling all over her, begging for his life. And then the king comes back in, and what does he see? His wife being assaulted by this advisor. In fact, the king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? The, uh, the wool has been removed from his eyes. He sees the character of Haman now. And we transition to scene three. With quick action, we see something happen to Haman. Right after the king's exclamation in verse eight, we see as soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, there's a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Now, if you were not here over the last few weeks, you would probably wonder, what's, what's this gallows doing here? Haman had planned to kill Mordecai, to ask for Mordecai's life, and so he built some gallows 75 feet tall in his backyard, right? So everybody could see him killing this Mordecai. The problem is, Mordecai was recognized as a hero for saving the king's life just before that happened. And so now Mordecai is kind of considered a hero at this point, and so Harbona decides to speak up one of the eunuchs. So I want to I just move us quickly. We see Haman, in quick action, is killed. Is immediately covered up and hung on the gallows. And what I, like, what I think is so interesting is the irony that's going on here. You cannot miss this irony. I mean, that's, this, this whole drama is so interesting because Haman is begging for the life. The queen doesn't have to beg Haman for her people or the life. In fact, now Haman has to beg the queen. In fact, he wanted to kill Mordecai, the king's new hero, but now he's going to be hanged. This is really like the script of an intense soap opera, if you think about it, or like a Shakespearean play. It's like a King Lear come to life. It's set in a court. It's, it's court intrigue as its finest. Now we even have a eunuch giving advice to the king who must really feel out of his depth with no advisors to help him. He seems to only be making decisions based on his advisor's help, and now he is isolated. He is alone. So the king has no more advisors. He's all by himself. Now, the problem with such a well-written story or such a well-written uh, work of art and narrative, is that it's so well-written, I think we could get caught up in the story and miss the point. I think we can miss the gospel thrust of this passage. I like how, how one commentator called this redemptive reversals. Reversals that lead to redemption. These reversals point to the greatest reversal of all time. 
In fact, if you, if you think about it, when Adam took the fruit and initiated the greatest reversal of all time, Satan, in his plan to destroy humankind, was put into place by man's rebellion. And if you go to Genesis 3, I think you would see that the outlook looks very grim. How many of you have, have read Genesis 3 and said, oh my goodness, what is about to happen? Especially for the first time. And we don't really see anything except for one small phrase of hope. And that phrase of hope comes in verse 15 of Genesis 3, and it says this, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. And this phrase of hope, it travels through the entire Old Testament. In fact, it's kept alive in the hearts of God's people, and God reveals more and more this plan of redemption until we get to the New Testament, where the promised seed, the promised offspring arise, arrives. Jesus Christ, God's own Son, truly God and truly man, a mystery, as the Apostle Paul calls it, hidden for ages and revealed to us. As John Jesse read Philippians chapter 2, God humbled himself by taking the form of man. Humbled himself, going from the palace in heaven to being here with humanity. You know, you and I right now, we are living in the in-between. The already, but the not yet. Christ has inaugurated his kingdom and he rules the church, but he has not yet come into his fullness. You know, we're like the Jews, hearing that we are under the judgment of death. King Ahasuerus has issued a decree for us to die. We are under sin's curse. Yet God the Son intervened. Sent by God the Father and empowered by God the Spirit, Jesus became the curse for all who would believe in Him. His people purchased by His own death. He went willingly to the gallows, as we talked about last week. Christ interceded for us. And then the evidence of God's approval in this is the raising of Jesus from the dead three days later, and then placing Him at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf. Now that's the greatest reversal. But what's interesting about Esther is, if you would just read Esther without any understanding of the gospel, you would miss that the whole point of Esther is to point to that great reversal. Have you ever done that before? When you read the Old Testament, it is pointing to Christ. We can't miss this. I don't think it's a far stretch. In fact, the reason why I think Esther is in the Bible is because it points to Jesus Christ. It points to this great reversal. It's to explain the gospel message to us. Now, the Jews that read it won't automatically see that. It has to be revealed over time until Christ has come. Now, we have one more part to our text this morning, and I don't want to belabor this verse 7, but we have a people for a people, the second part of our passage. And we have two scenes. There are two ultimate scenes. First, we see the scene one where Esther acquires a counter-decree. Let's go ahead and look at chapter 8, verse 1. That same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Man, how's that for a title? 
the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. What a reversal. What a, what a complete 180. It has been completely turned over. But then we see, so not only do we see Mordecai gaining Haman's position, but we see Esther begins to beg the king for her people. Let's look at verse 3. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil Haman, the Agagite, and his plot he had devised against the Jews. Remember that name was important if you look, look back when we introduced Haman. The king extended the gold scepter toward Esther, so she got up and stood before the king. She said, if it pleases the king, and I have found favor with him, if the matter seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, and she is really putting the screws to, to Hashawareth right now, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents, the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, isn't that interesting, the titles that we've been given in this chapter? Look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in your king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews and seal it with the royal signet ring, a document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. So King Ahasuerus is kind of a bind because every time there's an edict, it cannot be revoked. Right? That Once there's an executive order, it cannot be changed by the next president, at least in this situation. So due to Persian law, this cannot be changed. So Esther and Mordecai must come up with some plan, some counter decree. And King Ahasuerus, I think, is probably like, I have no idea what to do at this point. Let me just hand it over to you. You and Mordecai fix the problem. Which really flows into our second scene, which is the solution. Mordecai comes up with a new decree. Verse 9 of chapter 8 says this, On the 23rd day of the third month, that is the month of Sivian, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as Mordecai commanded for the Jews to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Kush. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in its own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote to King Ahasuer, wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, bred in the royal stables. The king's edict gave the Jews in every, each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate, annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, 
including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against their enemies on that day. The couriers rode out in haste on their royal horses at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. So what is this edict about? What did Mordecai and Esther come up with to save the Jews? Well, first, they said, okay, all Jews are now allowed to assemble, to make their own armies, and defend themselves. In fact, if anyone decides to attack them, their property is free game. So now the Jews can take the property of anyone that attacks them. Seems like a well-thought-out strategy. They could not repeal the law that allowed people to attack the Jews, but they could make it so people did not want to attack the Jews because they would fear the repercussions. And this allowed the Jews the benefit in defending themselves. And did you notice something about all the tools at the kingdom's disposal? So if you've been bearing with me through all of Esther, you would remember we talked about how frivolous the king was in using the postal system to make his silly laws about women and the queen and respecting their husbands. All women have to respect their husband and speak in the same language. So these best tools, they're put in, into action in reverse. So instead of using it to destroy, it's now used to save. In fact, this is the third time we see the Persian postal system put into action in this text. The first two times were like, one was for a silly reason with the queen. The second was all the Jews are going to die. And then this time, the Jews have hope. The tools of the government can be used for good or for bad. And I think we could say the tools of our age that we live in can be used for redemptive purposes. For example, our cell phones, our computers, they can be used for wickedness and to spread wickedness. But they can also be used for gospel redemptive purposes. And then we see this result. The result of this new edict is joyful celebration. So the, the last edict was weeping and mourning and gnashing of teeth and putting on a sackcloth and ashes and, and, and just total lament. But then we have the opposite now. We have rejoicing. Let's look at 15 through 17. Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal blue and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. So Mordecai goes from sackcloth and ashes to the royal garb. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Instead of crying out in sorrow and pain, they're now celebrating. And the Jews celebrated with gladness and joy and honor. In every province and every city where the king's command and edict reached, Gladness and joy took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday. And many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. This edict 
was so successful that many groups in the land decided to identify, self-identify, as Jews because they were afraid of the Jews. What a reversal. No one would want to be call themselves a Jew under the first edict, but under the second edict, they all wanted to be called Jews. The first edict to exterminate the Jews led to sorrow and lament. The second led to rejoicing. The first led to hiding of the Jewish identity. The second led to people rejoicing and joining the Jews. What a vast change. You know, this really goes to show why God had Esther and Mordecai positioned in the capital city. Even with the death of Haman, the edict to exterminate the Jews was still in effect. The trouble is not quite over yet. Next week, next week you're going to have to come for the cliffhanger. What is going to happen, truly happen to the Jews? You know, I, I think that we can, we can learn something to apply to our lives from this passage. As Christians, even though the battle has been won against death and the devil, we still have the remaining effects of sin to deal with. Without Christ, we have no hope. But now we who belong to Jesus are covered by the new edict. We are rescued from certain eternal destruction. But we are still in a battle. But we have a Savior, Helper, and Friend. The Friend promises to never leave you nor forsake you. To give you rest when you come to Him. I want you to ask yourself this question. When you face the eternal God and He asks you, why should He let you in with His people? What is your answer? What will be your answer? Are you going to be like the people in this passage pretending to be a Jew? Will you ask God or answer God by saying this, I did my best. Or maybe this. I went to church. Went to church a lot. Or this. This is my favorite. I know right theology. My theology is perfect. I know exactly when everything in Revelation is going to happen. Everybody else is wrong. Or maybe, you know, I really help the poor. I gave up a ton of money to help the poor. Or maybe this, I was kind. If anyone deserves to heaven, it's me. To go to heaven, it's me. I was so kind. I didn't send out any mean tweets. Not one of these are going to do. Not one of those excuses will work. Doesn't matter how kind you are, it doesn't matter how many times you went to church. It doesn't matter how good your theology is. If you have right theology, it doesn't even fix the issue. It doesn't matter how many poor people you helped. And it really doesn't matter how, how you did your best. Our only hope is to bring the edict written in the blood of Jesus Christ, sealed by the ring of the Holy Spirit that says, I know Jesus and He knows me. I belong to Jesus, and for His sake can I come in. I'm only welcomed into the family of God because of Jesus Christ. 
Not because I'm pretending to, because I'm afraid of what might happen. Not because I'm coming to church to hopefully get that business deal that I want. My question to you is, do you know him? Matthew 7, 22-23 has these startling words. And I want you to listen very carefully, especially you, Silas. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? And this is Jesus speaking. He says, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I wonder, do you know him? Are you prepared to meet him? I, I, I would be doing a disservice to you because there are many in this room who are going to meet him within the next few years. Do you know Jesus? No, not, not, not facts about him. Do you know him? Do you have an intimate relationship with him? Do you pursue him? On this answer lays our eternal fate. Which edict are you living by? The hope of salvation through Jesus Christ alone? Or th I did my best. It pains me to see that. You know, I, I don't typically bring this up, but I had a great meeting with Joy on Saturday. And I asked Joy, I said, Joy, where do you get your strength to endure the pain? that you are going through. And she says, you know, there's an old hymn that's a day by day, day by day, every day she is pursuing Christ. Every day she is looking to Jesus, beholding Jesus. And so I don't know what's in store for joy, but I do know that she is ready to meet her maker whenever that time comes. And when she stands before God in her new body that's pain-free, and she stands before him and he says, why should I let you stand with the people of God? She will say, only Jesus. Not because of me, not because of my legacy, not because of all my kids, not because one of my kids is on the mission field, not because there's multiple layers of success, because of Christ and Christ alone. I wonder if you know him. If you don't know him, it is not too late to know him. Scripture says that if you believe, that's all it takes. It doesn't take extra strength. It doesn't take extra wisdom. You don't have to know every Bible verse in, in Scripture. If you don't know Him, I'm begging you with all my heart to get to know Him today. Now, I'm going to say this. There are some of you who have been pretending to be of the Jews for a long time. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, right? Pretending to be a Christian for a long time. There are some in this room that I know for a fact would try to make those excuses standing before God. And the question I want to ask you is, are you going to let your embarrassment to coming forward and becoming a member of the family of God hold you back? Because if it is, you're not trusting in the Lord alone. And I say that because I have to stand before God and give an account for your, for your soul. And so I want you to know very clearly that if you do not know Jesus you have no right to belong to the family of God. I know that's a heavy way to end this message, 
but I say that because I love you and I care about you. And we're about to have a delicious feast. I can already start to smell the food coming up from the bottom. Back when the basement was not ready, we used to have our food along the side. And so my sermons were much quicker during that time. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. But I, I want you to think about that question. Do you know him? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you trust him alone for your salvation? If not, please talk to the elders today. Please talk to me. Talk to somebody. Talk to God. Something. Reach out. Father, it's, it's only through you and, and your dear son that we can come. That we can enter into the throne room and we have no fear of death, destruction. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that your spirit would convict their hearts today. That they would not leave this room without making their lives right before you. Father, I, I know there's so much suffering in this world. Lord, so many life decisions that as I, as I look at the congregation, I know there are people who have uh, shifted in their jobs. They are changing jobs and looking for your calling in their life. Some that have retired recently. Some that are considering retirement. Lord, there's so many questions, but Father, we know that the answer is in you. Father, we know that we can rest on your all-sufficient Son. Father, I want to bless the food. Uh, Lord, if it doesn't nourish us, at least help it be good for our hearts, that we would be joyful in fellowship. Lord, I thank you for this dear congregation. I pray for those who are, are absent because of illness. And we ask these things in the beautiful name and the precious name of Christ, through the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.